Parshas Mitzorah has 90 verses and 11 mitzvos, and it is a continuation of the theme of last week's parsha, namely that of the Mitzorah. Mitzorah is someone, as a result of a variety of sins, they are stricken with a spiritual illness. Last week we saw the laws related to the Mitzorah who has tzaras, this illness, on their body and later on on their garments. This week's parasha is going to be dedicated towards how a mitzorah, how someone who has tzaras gets out of that state. They were relegated to being an outcast, to being a pariah, to being someone who was ostracized from the community. They're outside of the camp. They have to rip their garments. They have to let their hair grow. They have to hopefully dwell upon what they did to bring them to that situation. Like we said last week, there's a variety of sins, but the most notable of those sins is, of course, Lashon Hara, evil talk, speaking evilly, slanderously, gossiping about other people. That caused division. So we saw last week, because he caused division, therefore he is divided. He is ostracized. He's outside the camp. Hopefully he's repented. And therefore, as a result, his illness was healed. And the Parsha begins with how he rids himself of that situation, of how he purifies himself and rejoins, again, the rest of his kinsmen, the rest of his co-religionists, the rest of the Jewish people, and hopefully will have learned his lesson and not fall into the terrible trap of Lashon Hara and the other sins that brought him upon that status. That's the beginning of the Parsha. And the Parsha is also going to talk about a third method of tsaras. We had tsaras on your body and on your garment, and we're going to read about the very interesting and very unusual situation where this spiritual malady, tsaras, appears as various colored streaks on the walls of your home. So the parsha begins, Hashem said to Moses, saying, this shall be the law of the Mitzorah on the day of his purification. We're talking now about the purification. He has been contaminated, He's repented, and now it's time for him to be purified. As an introduction to some of the themes of the Parsha, there is a beautiful statement from the great Chafetz Chaim, Rabbi Israel Meir HaKohen Kagan, known by the name of his book, the book called Chafetz Chaim. He was, of course, a great sage, lived at the end of the 19th and the early part of the 20th century, and his hallmark was his incredible, meticulous fastidiousness in not speaking any Lashon Hara, and he's, of course, named after his book, Chafetz Chaim, which means seeker of life, based upon a verse in the book of Psalms, which says, who is the one who seeks life, who wants long days? Someone who guards your mouth from speaking any evil. So he was the one who assembled and collected and clarified and codified and canonized all the laws related to Lashon Hara to, towards evil talk. And he has a very nice homiletic teaching on this first verse of our parsha. This shall be the law of the Metzorah. In Hebrew, this reads, Zotihiyah Torah HaMetzorah. This is the Torah of the Metzorah, beyond Torah to on the day of his purification. So the way we read it simply is that this is the laws governing the Metzorah, governing the person who has Saras on the day that he wants to expiate himself from Saras on the day of his purification. Says the Chofetz Chaim, there's another way to read this. This is the Torah of the Metzorah. When does someone who speaks Lashon Hara, when do they have Torah? When is their Torah vibrant and alive? 
biyom tarasau, the day of their purification. Once they cleanse themselves from tsaras and from the sins that engendered tsaras, then they could have Torah. How so? We study Torah with our power of speech. When someone speaks Lashon Hara, Lashon Hara literally means evil tongue. They are sullying their faculties of speech, their tongue, their lips, their teeth. They're sullying them with sin. That person goes to study Torah, their mouth's contaminated. How could you study the Almighty's Torah with sullied, sinful, evil mouth? It's not possible. Therefore, we read, this is the Torah of the Mitzvah. When does the Mitzvah have Torah? On the day that they are purified. There's a powerful idea that when someone has Lashon Hara, the power of speech, the the power of verbal oral communication is curtailed. Anything that you want to do with your speech, like studying Torah, now you can't really do it. It's going to be weakened. Similarly, we see with prayer. Of course, we pray to God. And we hope that our prayer is efficacious. But if our prayer is emanating from lips, from tongues that are weakened, that are sullied, that have been rendered impure and contaminated by sin, by the sin of the speech, the sin of Lashon Hara, how can we come to God? How could that mouth be an effective conduit towards verbal prayer? And in fact, we had last week's Parsha that when someone has tsaras, the verse tells us, this is in chapter 13, verse 45, tame tame yikra, and he should call out, behold, I am impure, behold, I am impure. Rashi tells us. Why does he announce to the world that he's impure? Says Rashi, quoting, of course, from our sages, that the reason why he announces his impurity so that all the onlookers should pray for them. And the question is, wait a minute, why should the onlookers pray for him? Shouldn't he pray for himself? After all, the Talmud tells us that someone's prayer for themselves is more effective than someone else's prayer for them. Why? Because when Ishmael, the son of Abraham, when he was banished from Abraham's home, chapter 21 of the book of Genesis, he was very thirsty and was going to die. And his mother, Hagar, was praying for him. And he was praying for himself. And the verse tells us that God listened. God hearkened to the voice of the child, the voice of Ishmael. And Rashi tells us why to the voice of Ishmael, why to Ishmael's prayer and not to Hagar's prayer. And Rashi explains that this proves that the prayer of a patient, of a sick patient themselves, is more effective than the prayer of other people for that patient. So if so, over here, we have someone who's ill, someone who has an illness like Saras, and he's asking everyone else to pray for him. Why doesn't he pray for himself? After all, his prayer, the prayer of a sick person for themselves, is more effective than anyone else's prayer for them. Why does he announce, behold, I am impure, so people should pray for him? He should pray for himself. And the answer is, because this person is not just sick. He's sick as a result of flawed, evil, sinful speech. That speech renders his lips, his tongue, his faculties of speech, impure, contaminated. As a result, he wants to come pray. This patient, his prayer is less efficacious as a result of his sin, and therefore he has to outsource it to others. They should pray for him, and hopefully they will help because his prayer 
as a result of his sin is less effective. Okay, but now hopefully he's been purified. And what's the halacha? The Kohen goes out and the Kohen inspects him. Just like the Kohen was the one who rendered him impure, who evaluated his situation and said this person's impure, now the Kohen is going to render him pure by examining the Tsaras, it's been healed. Okay, now begins a very long, a week long, a little more than a week in fact, process of purification. On the first day, the Kohen shall command, the person should be purified, and they have to assemble the materials. Two live, clean birds, these birds can be any kosher birds, cedar wood, crimson thread, and hyssop. That's what, these are the ingredients that are going to be used for the purification. Well, what do you do with these things? One of the birds is slaughtered in an earthenware vessel together with some water. And then you have a live bird, in the other hand, so you have one dead bird and its blood is in a vessel, a basin. You take the live bird together with the three other themes. The cedar wood comes from a very tall tree. The crimson thread that comes from a, a worm uh, that you dye the, the wool in. And the hyssop is a, is, a, is a very, is a, it's like grass. And you take those themes, you wrap them together. So you have a live bird and three other items that grow from the ground. You dip them into the blood, and then you take this concoction, this cocktail, and you sprinkle it seven times upon the person who's been purified, on the person upon the person who just a day earlier was the Mitsora, was someone who had saras. After this very unusual ceremony, the person is purified, or at least the initial stage of the purification have been done. And then you take that live bird and you release it, you free it into the open field. And then the first of uh, several of these events are going to happen. The person purifies, washes his clothing, washes his body, shaves off all his hair, and enters the camp. He is now allowed to go back into the camp, even though he's not allowed to go into his tent. So he's allowed into the camp, but it's kind of like a halfway house. Initially, well, previously, when he was a Mitsura, full Mitsura, he was outside the camp. Now, the first day after his purification, he's allowed to go into the camp, but is still not allowed to go into his tent and is still not allowed to engage in any marital intercourse uh, for the duration of his seven days of purification. So a lot of really bizarre, at least initially, processes that we're doing here with this Mitzvah. So Rashi, of course, explains the deep meaning and the powerful insight that is derived by all these uh, very unusual ingredients that are assembled for this purification process. So it begins with two live, clean birds. Says Rashi, why does the person have tsaras? What sin caused them to be stricken with this illness? They spoke Lashon Hara. Like a bird that couldn't stop jabbering, yammering, and chirping. Therefore, this is what he sinned with, this is what is needed to purify him. The Balhaturim tells us something interesting. He says, just like a bird, a bird, it has, of course, a nest, but then it flies away. Similarly, someone who's Shon Hurrah is going to be nomadic. Like a bird, he's going to be uprooted from his place and placed in a different location, away from everyone else, alone, to dwell and to wallow upon his condition why he got there, to think about why he got there. Okay, so those are the birds. Well, what about the cedar wood? Says Rashi, the cedar wood is a result of the fact that the cedar is a very high tree. And the reason, the core characteristic as to why this person 
spoke negatively about other people, it's because he was aloof. He was above everyone. He was haughty. He was arrogant. He had hubris. He was tall and mighty like the cedar tree. And consequently, he looked down at everyone else. He denigrated them. He viewed them as being inferior to him. And that's why this sin sprung upon him. And that's why the result, the tsaras, cleaved to him. Now, it's interesting the splotches of Tsaras, the color that we saw last week, is it's a white color. And the obvious question is, you know, in, in, in Jewish literature, white is always associated with purity. In fact, on, on, on Yom Kippur, we try to, we all, we wear white and we try to atone like white. And then the verse tells us that if our sins are red, well, God will whiten them. Why is the symbol of impurity of contamination, why is that white too? Maybe this is the answer. Someone who speaks negatively about other people, they view themselves as being just, themselves as being righteous. They are white. And in fact, this may be in fact an area in which they are white. They are, so to speak, better than the person that they are denigrating. But even if you're better than someone, it doesn't mean you speak negatively about them. So yes, you are better but you know what? That whiteness, that purification, that righteousness that you have, if you express it in the wrong way, in a Lashon Hara fashion, it's going to sprout up as white splotches and render you impure. So those are the first two ingredients. The next ingredients are crimson thread and hyssop. These are very low themes, either low like a worm or low like this, this grass. And therefore, the lesson that the person who is the Mitzorah is supposed to deduce is that they have to lower themselves. They have to humble themselves. That is a way for them to repent and to atone for the deeds that brought them to this point. Now, why are they sprayed seven times? The Balaturim says that's a reference to the seven sins for which a person could get saras. And finally, why is one bird slaughtered and one bird sent away? So this is also an indication, also a lesson for the Mitzorah, that just as the one bird that was slaughtered is not coming back, so too your Tsaras is not coming back. However, a second bird is sent away. And that's a reference that if the person goes back to his sinful ways, just like there's the, that bird is still alive, so too the potential for him to have Tsaras is still alive, he could still get it. A second reason why the, sec- the second bird is released, it's to show that when someone speaks Lashon Hara, when someone speaks bad talk, just like it's very hard to re-cage a released bird, it's very hard to catch, so to speak, to undo, to reverse the damage that was done with Lashon Hara. In fact, there's a very famous dispute between the, the aforementioned Chafetz Chaim, Rabbi Israel Meir HaKohen Kagan, and the giant of the 19th century, Rabbi Israel Salanter. How do you atone for Lashon Hara? How do you repent for it? Suppose I speak negatively about someone else. And now I feel bad, I want to repent. Must I go and ask them, the person who I spoke about, the subject of my evil talk, must I ask them for forgiveness? So this was a dispute. On one hand, well, after all, I spoke bad about them, and I should ask them for forgiveness. However, conversely, What's going to happen if I go over to the person and tell him, listen, I spoke negatively about you? Isn't that going to exacerbate the enmity 
between the two of us. Therefore, the Chavetz Chaim rules that we should not go and apologize to them. We should repent between us and God, but we should not inform the subject of my evil talk that I spoke about them negatively because that will achieve the opposite goal. Instead of fostering love and goodwill, it's going to foster further animus, further enmity. So the person has been atoned for at least the initial stages. Now it is seven days they spend inside the camp in that halfway house. And verse 9 we read, On the seventh day shall shave off all his hair, his head, his beard, his eyebrows, and all of his hair again, we read, um, so not only to say all of his hair, it gives us specifics, his head, his beard, and his eyebrows. So Rashi tells us, that's a reference, only the visual parts, the parts that are visualized to the naked eye. In addition, he immerses his clothing, he washes his clothing, he immerses his flesh in water, and then the next stage of his purification, he becomes pure. Why does it mention specifically the head, the hair on the head, the hair on the beard, and the hair on the eyebrows. So perhaps this symbolizes the three areas in which the sin of Lashon is most pronounced. Someone's head, that's where they feel their haughtiness, their aloofness, shave that hair. Someone's beard, beard after all, surrounds the mouth. The mouth, of course, is the vehicle for the speech of slander and gossip. And the eyes, the eyes, well, they are a reference to the envy which perhaps motivated his antisocial behavior. So now it's been seven days of atonement, and then the final stage of purification is day eight. Day eight, he takes two unblemished male lambs and a unblemished ewe and some flour and some oil, and he comes to the tent of meeting. So, of course, that's the Mishnah, the tabernacle, and eventually this is the temple once there's a permanent place of God's Shechina to dwell. It's the temple. And this is brought as various offerings to God. Now, because he is still in a quasi-state of purity, he doesn't walk all the way in. He is at the entrance of the tent of meaning because he's not fully purified. He can't actually walk in. He still has to stand outside. And then we read about the processing of these sacrifices. First, the Kohen slaughters the lamb. He takes the blood and he does something very unusual with it. He places it on three parts of the Mitzorah, the erstwhile Mitzorah's body. One on the ear, the right ear. One on the thumb, which is on the right hand. And one on the big toe, which is on his right foot. If you've been listening intently for the past couple of weeks, you'll remember that that process was also done to the priests, to the Aaron and his children on the first day of their initiation. We read that a few weeks ago. So that's the first thing that is done. Then we take the oil and the oil is sprinkled upon the, uh, in the direction of the Holy of Holies. Some of the remaining oil is put on those same three locations, just the air, just like the blood of the sacrifice is put on the ear and the right thumb and the big toe on the right foot. So too, the oil from that part of the sacrifice is also put in those same three locations. And if there's any leftover oil, it's poured on the head of the individual who is being purified. And then the second sacrifice is offered. And this shall complete the atonement of someone who was a Metzorah. Now, just like we had with sacrifices in the beginning of Leviticus, we have over here, by this particular set of sacrifices, there is one 
prescription for someone who is a little bit wealthier and could afford more expensive animals for sacrifices. And then verse 21, we read about how this process is done for someone who is poor who cannot afford those same expensive animals. Now, it's important to stress, today, we don't have tsaras. We're not at that same spiritual level in which our sins are immediately manifest in a tangible way. But of course, we still have Lashon Hara, and therefore the spiritual blemish that results from someone speaking Lashon Hara is still present. The Talmud tells us, in the book of Arachin, page 15b, what is the atonement of people who speak Lashon Hara? Says the Talmud, if, if that person is a Torah scholar, you should study Torah. If you're not a Torah scholar, your cure is to humble yourself. And the idea being, just as Lashon Hara, that breeds impurity contamination in your mouth, what is the one thing that you could do to overpower that? What is the one thing that you could do to use your mouth for something holy and to cleanse, so to speak, the mouth? Well, you use that same mouth for holiness, for Torah, and that will hopefully undo the damage that was rendered by the sin of Lashon Hara. And then in verse 33, we read about a new kind of tsaras, tsaras when it appears not on your body, not on your garments, but on your home. Now the Midrash tells us, why do we have to have three different types of tsaras? Says the Midrash, there's a certain progression. When someone speaks Lashon Hara or does some of these other sins, initially the tsaras happens on their home. It's a little bit removed from them. And the the hope is that when it appears in their home, they'll take the message. They won't say, oh, you know what, this is something, this is some mold, this is something that occurs naturally anyhow. They'll take the lesson to heart. They'll absorb the teaching. They'll apply to themselves. They'll fix what it is that was broken and the tzaras will go away and they'll be better off. If the person does not fix it initially, well, then they'll get a little closer. It's not in their home. It's on their garment. It's, it's very close and it, the lesson should be more powerful. If they don't listen to that, if they continue their evil ways, finally Tsaras will appear on their body. Again, we see that the objective here is not one of punishment, but one of, of, of awakening the person to the evil of his ways and hopefully they will mend those evil ways. So the section begins, Hashem spoke to Moses and to Aaron, telling the Jewish people, when you arrive in the land of Canaan that I give you as a possession, I will place a tsaras affliction upon a house in the land of your possession. So there's a certain preamble over here. When you arrive in the land of Canaan, then you have tsaras affliction upon the house. So the simple understanding is that these laws, the laws of tsaras on the home, they're applicable only after Jewish people conquer the entire land of Israel. Whereas the other tzaras, tzaras on the garment and on your body, that is already present prior before the conquest of Canaan, before the Jewish people settle into the land of Canaan. That's the simple understanding. You look at Rashi. Rashi says something very novel, and initially it sounds a little bit unusual. It says Rashi, this is a tiding that when the Jewish people enter the land of Israel, they will have tzaras in their home. Why? There's a very good reason for this. Because the Amorites, these are the people that lived there prior, they heard about the Jewish people and they were terrified of the Jewish people. And for 40 years, for the duration of Jewish people's tenure in the wilderness, these Amorites were hiding all their valuables, all their gold 
behind their walls. They will steer the Jewish people. Jewish people come. We want to make sure that our valuables are protected. They hid them behind the walls. Jewish people move into the homes previously inhabited by these Amorites. And what happens? A affliction of Tsaras appears in the wall. Part of the laws are that you have to dismantle the home or at least take away some of those bricks that were afflicted. So it's almost like the Almighty is going to pinpoint exactly where the gold is. And he's going to make this magical Tsaras affliction on the walls of the home. Eventually, the Jewish people will have to dismantle at least that section. And you know what? They'll discover the hidden riches. And there's a very interesting idea here. There's a lot, a few, maybe a few ways to go with this. But one of the ideas here is that sometimes the money wants to make us wealthy. But perhaps there's good ways to do it and bad ways to do it. It's possible that this individual, he was going to become wealthy regardless of what happened. But because he may have had some sins, the Almighty says, okay, I'm going to make him wealthy in this fashion where he is going to be simultaneously rewarded because he's supposed to have wealth for whatever reason. But he's also going to be reminded that you need to repent from your ways and he's given the tsaras and he, you kill two birds with one stone because his wealth is achieved and his punishment, or at least his reminder, is also achieved in this same fashion. But it's possible if the person was not a sinner, they would have still gotten the wealth, but they would have gotten it in a more pleasant way, in a way that did not have with it the shame, the degradation of having your home afflicted with tsaras. So that's an interesting introduction that we see here from Rashi, that Saras on the home is not necessarily an entirely bad omen. It could portend to something very valuable. There could be some hidden gold and valuables behind the wall that was afflicted with Saras. So that's the introduction here. So what happens? Someone who has this sign on their home, they come and they tell the Kohen, something like an affliction has appeared to me in the house. So the diagnosis is one that is presented kind of hesitatingly. Something like an affliction, he comes to the Kohen, of course the Kohen has to oversee it, but doesn't tell him an affliction appeared. He says, something that kind of looks like an affliction has appeared on the walls of my home. Says Rashi, why does he say in that kind of hesitating tone, even if someone is supremely knowledgeable, he's a great scholar, and he knows to differentiate between a real sign of trust and a fake one, he still should have the humility to not render a final ruling and say, affliction appears. Say, no, it seems like it's an affliction. It appears like it. I'm not so sure. And the Talmud tells us that a person should always train themselves to say, I don't know. It's a good thing to train yourself. Maybe that's the idea over here, that even though someone may be a Torah scholar, when they present their findings, when they present their evidence, the Kohen, they should say it in somewhat of an uncertain fashion. In fact, as rabbis, we are trained that whenever there's a matter of a judgment call, we should avoid saying it's not good, it's problematic. Don't necessarily render a ruling. Why? So of course there's the humility component we just spoke about a second ago. There's a second component, and that is that once a ruling is rendered with finality, with definitiveness, it cannot be undone willy-nilly. And therefore, if you have a rabbi who's presented a halachic query 
and you can maybe see it go both ways, but you're kind of leaning that it's not good, you say, it doesn't appear to me good. I cannot permit it. But maybe you'll find some other rabbi who can. And that's maybe another idea over here that unless you're the coin, unless you're the final authority on this issue, don't say anything definitive because once you say something definitive, it might be halakhically difficult to rever- to reverse that, to undo that. So the coin arrives at the home and before he arrives, everything in the house is brought outside of the house. Why? Because if the Cohen is in the house and the house is full of furniture and full of all kinds of stuff and the Cohen says, well, this is impure, this is actually Tsaras, this home has been afflicted with this contamination, everything that is inside the house has now suffered and is now considered impure. And therefore, before the Cohen comes, before he renders a ruling, everything is taken outside the house so they should not be contaminated by the ruling if it is indeed a ruling that it's impure. So if you think about that, this adds another wrinkle to this process because now it's not just a question of is my house okay or not. It's a question of all the neighbors now see all my furniture piled outside in the front yard. And that, of course, adds a degree of pain. And maybe that is linked to all the other emotions that the Mitzvah is supposed to have. The component of shame of being divided from his folk from his neighbors, that is maybe by design, everyone kind of sees that there's something wrong in this home. So the Kohen does not render a final ruling. He sees in the walls, in the plaster, he sees various colors, greens, reds. He leaves the house and he quarantines the house for a seven-day period. After seven days, the Kohen returns and re-examines the affliction, re-examines the splotches on the wall. If they spread, then indeed the house has been contaminated and those stones upon which there is these afflictions, they have to be removed and they have to be deposited out of the city in a, in a contaminated place. These stones are forever unusable. The entire surrounding stones and plaster has to be scraped away and again deposited out of the city in a contaminated place and you take new stones, and they're placed in the voids left by the previous stones. You again replaster, remortar the house, and then you wait and see what happens again. You wait seven more days, and after seven days, you re-examine the home. If the affliction has returned, and it's erupted in the home, even in the location where the new stones had replaced the existing stones, then the home must be demolished, all parts of the home, the stones, the timber, the mortar, everything is deposited out to the city. The entire home is dismantled and you cannot come into the home. This is a, a location, a venue of impurity. If anyone comes, they become contaminated as well. Whereas if the coin comes and he sees that the affliction has not spread, then he renders the home to be purified. The affliction has been healed. And again, the purification process like it was outlined previously with regards to the Mitzorah on their body, there is a purification process for the Mitzorah, for the Saras of the home. You take a bird and you take another bird and again, you have those other ingredients, the, the cedar, the hyssop, the crimson thread, and you dip it in, you spray it on the home. And that concludes these laws, the laws of Saras, both of, of your garments, both of your 
body and of course one on your home. So that's the conclusion of the laws of Tsaras. Now I want to maybe suggest an idea to maybe a, a different way of understanding uh, the laws of Tsaras on their home. You know, think about it. Rashi tells us this very odd story that for 40 years the Canaanites were hiding gold in their walls. You know, why would they do it? It seems like a very strange thing. Rashi even, in fact, says that for 40 years they've been hiding the gold. You would think they would only hide it at the end of those 40 years when the Jewish people are imminently on the doorstep of entering the land of Canaan. Only then it would make sense to hide the gold. Why would they hide the gold for 40 years? It's a very unusual formulation in Rashi uh, that you find the gold behind the walls. Now, to complicate matters a little further, there is a statement in the Talmud, in the book of Sanhedrin, page 71a. And the Talmud lists three Torah situations, three mitzvot, in fact, that are situations that never happened and never will happen. But why are they written? It means why does the Torah govern such a situation? It's written for the sole purpose to study it and to derive reward for the study. And the Talmud tells us that a ben sorer umore, a wayward and rebellious son that's outlined in, in the book of Deuteronomy, that never happened, never will happen. So why is it written? Why does the Torah give us these laws? Study it and gain reward. A wayward city where the entire city does idolatry never happened, never will happen. So why is it written? Study it and gain reward. And the third of this trilogy a home afflicted with saras never happened, never will happen. So why is it written? Why does the Torah tell us all these laws here at the end of chapter 14 of the book of Leviticus? Study it and gain reward. Now, it's important to note the Talmud does bring a different opinion. There is one opinion that says that indeed it happened. But it's really interesting here if you contrast this Talmud with the teaching in Rashi, it seems like there's a problem. The Talmud says, well, this entire law, the law of Taras in the home, it's entirely theoretical. Never happened, never will happen. So why is in the Torah? Study it and gain reward. Rashi gives us this whole long story of the Amorites. They knew the Jewish people were coming. They put their gold behind their walls. And then God is going to bring Taras and it's going to pinpoint where the gold is. A whole long story. It seems that these two are incompatible. On one hand, the Talmud says it's totally theoretical. There's just study and gain reward. And Rashi doesn't say that it never happened. Rashi actually says that the reason why it did happen, you can't give me the reason why something happened if it never happened. And therefore, Rashi takes for granted that that it did happen and tells us the reason why it happened. Whereas the Talmud says it never happened to begin with. Is there any way to reconcile this teaching of the Talmud that Saras and Home never happened and this very interesting story in Rashi, which gives us this whole interesting backstory? It happened, you found the gold, the Jewish people got the gold. I want to maybe suggest an approach to try to see if there's some compatibility. Maybe the Talmud is correct. It never happened, it never will happen. But why do we study it? Study it? and gain reward. There's some sort of reward. There's some sort of tremendous insight that we could derive from studying it. I want to suggest maybe that this whole story that Rashi tells us 
that in effect is the lesson, is the reward that you get for studying, almost like a parable. You think about it. Jewish people, they left Egypt and they spent 40 years in the wilderness living a itinerant lifestyle. They were intense. They weren't in permanent homes. And 44 times in 40 years, they moved. They relocated. So they were in each location less than a year on average. It's not a permanent lifestyle. They get to Canaan and they spend seven years of conquest, war and conquest, seven years of dividing up the land amongst the various tribes. So if you think about it, by the time the Jewish people set in their permanent homes in the land of Canaan, it's been 54 years since they left Egypt with the hopes of getting to the land of Canaan and living a normal lifestyle in Canaan. What happens? Someone has a new home. He's finally finished all the 40 years of the wilderness and the wars of conquest and dividing up the land. And he's home. He's in his permanent home and he plans on being there forever. And he looks at his home one day and he notices that there's some what appears like saras. And he remembers from the book of Leviticus what has to be done. He calls over the Kohen and the Kohen says, everyone out, everyone move out, take all your furniture, everything out, make a huge pile on the front lawn. And the neighbors are watching him and they're judging him and he feels shamed and he feels shunned. Terrible. It's a disaster. And the bulldozers start coming in and he's watching from a distance and he sees that they start to dismantle his home. And he starts thinking, you know, where is he going to live? Is he going to rent a home? He's going to save money to buy a new home. And as they're dismantling the home, there's a huge shriek. There's a discovery. They discover all the gold and all the jewels and all the valuables that were hidden behind these walls. What was previously a tremendous disaster is now maybe a great blessing. Maybe this person didn't have the resources, the wherewithal to do what he wanted to do. And now he has a tremendous bounty, all this gold, all this valuables that were hidden by the previous owners of his home. And maybe we could say it this way. You know, some people, they have the belief, they have the trust in God that everything that happens to them is is for the best. But for others, you know, when bad things happen, it stings, it hurts them. They don't know why this disappointment strikes But you know what? Even when disappointment strikes, even when you're in a rut, even when you're in a bad situation, it's possible that 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 may open opportunities to do even better things. Maybe this, in fact, never did happen, never will happen. It's entirely theoretical. But what's the lesson? The lesson is sometimes that there's a menacing cloud, you should know it has a silver Lining. Yes, your house may be dismantled, but you know what? The situation will be sweetened because something good will happen. Even when you think something bad happened to you, you can't find nothing positive in it. That's the lesson. Study this intently, says the Talmud. Never happened, never will happen. It's theoretical. But the theory, the insight, the lesson is what something that may be viewed initially as, as very bad. In the end, it could turn out to be very good. And I think, you know, in our lives, Definitely people who are older and have had more life experience could probably testify to this as being true. There's times in our lives that, you know, we don't understand why things happened, you know, why we didn't get this 
spouse that we wanted to marry. We didn't get into the school we wanted to go to. We didn't get the job opportunity. Things fell through. And we don't necessarily at the time understand, like, why did this happen? And every once in a while, when something like that happens, in retrospect, maybe years later, we realize that really the Almighty was doing something good for me. At the time, I thought it was terrible. I thought it was a disaster. But ultimately, in the end, I realized that what looked like my house being dismantled was just, in effect, me finding gold, me becoming rich. I think it's important, as we wrap up the discussion of Tsaras, to talk a little bit about the idea of Lashon Hara in general. If you go to the Rambam, Maimonides, at the end of the laws of Tumas Tsaras, the laws of impurity from Tsaras, he ends off with a beautiful essay talking about Lashon Hara in general and the importance that we have to have to be tremendously vigilant to not be ensnared in this terrible sin. It's a very powerful, very deep essay from the Rambam. He ends off with an astonishing point that someone who is a heretic, someone who has heresy, can actually be attributed. It's actually a byproduct of idle banter gone awry. In effect, the Rambam is telling us that bad speech and hanging out with bad company who talk about bad things is actually a segue to all kinds of terrible destinations. But I want to kind of sample some of the statements from our sages about Lashon Hara and how dangerous and destructive it, in fact, is. So the first source maybe to look at is the Talmud, the book of Sota, page 42a. And the Talmud lists four groups of people that do not receive the face of the Shekhinah. Basically, people that don't end up with an encounter with God, don't have a bright future in the afterlife. And it lists the scoffers, the flatterers, the liars, and the habitual Lashon Hara speakers. All four of them are people that are sinners, sinners specifically with their tongue. There is a second teaching in the Rambam regarding Lashon Hara, and it talks about retribution, punishment, that's extracted in this world. We believe that Every deed that we do, both good and bad, is going to be recompensed by God, good and bad. However, says the Rambam, there's three sins that someone is punished for them in this world, and they are the big three, Avodazara, idolatry, adultery, and murder. And then the Rambam concludes, and Lashon Hara is equal to all of them. And then he quotes the Talmud, Lashon Hara kills three people, the speaker, the listener and the subject. And the listener is worse than the speaker. Here we're told that Lashon Hara is up there with the big three, with the three cardinal sins, with the three worst sins that we could do in our religion. And finally, another Rambam in the Laws of Chuva, the Laws of Repentance, chapter three, law number six, he's listing the people who lose their portion in the world to come, who are locked out of eternity, and he lists all the worst sinners in the world, and the heretics, and the apostates, and the heathens, the people that are what we would view as being very grave, heinous even, egregious sinners, and then he ends off habitual Lashon Hara speakers. Again, we see a sin like Lashon Hara speaking negatively about someone else, it seems to us to be somewhat innocuous after all. That is the person damaged? Is he hurt? 
Has he been irreparably harmed? Not really. It's just words. Sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me, we're told as kids. That's what it seems like. And here we see that it's up there with the most severe sins with eternal consequences. So maybe we could suggest an approach, a general approach, regarding Lashon Hara in general and speech in general. A human is, in effect, a hybrid between an angelic soul and an animalistic body. On one hand, with respect to our soul, we're loftier than angels. Whereas with respect to our body, we're even less than animals. So we're a hybrid. We're half physical and half spiritual. Speech, our voice, our mouth, that's the touch point of these two worlds. Just as a human is a half-spiritual, half-physical entity, speech is partially physical. After all, use your lips and your tongue and your throat and uh, your teeth to produce the sounds. But it's also, speech is something which is spiritual. It seems to be non-tangible. It doesn't seem to be palpable. It's It's kind of like from the spiritual realm. And therefore... Speech, in effect, is a manifestation of humanity. The Talmud tells us that when a child has their physical and their spiritual components fused together for good, the angel comes and hits him on his mouth. And the idea being is that the fusion of physical and spiritual is always going to be the touch point of someone's mouth. When someone corrupts their mouth, They are corrupting their essence. This is who you are. Your identity as a human is captured in your power to speak. And therefore, when you corrupt that, you're becoming essentially corrupted. And therefore, that portends to you in a very fundamental way. And there's many, many other sources talking about Lashon Hara and the importance of guarding your tongue. In fact, the Talmud tells us that the tongue, it's the only organ that has two guards. There's the teeth that blockade it. There's the lips that blockade it. Why? It's so important to guard your tongue. In addition, the Talmud, the book of Chesubas tells us the reason why we have earlobes, kind of an unusual thing. You know, the Torah does not seem to be a book of anatomy. And that seems to be a very unusual subject matter in in the Torah. Yet, the only organ that the Talmud gives us a reason why we have it is the earlobes. The reason why we have earlobes, says the Talmud, is to place it in our ears in case someone's speaking Lashon Hara, in case someone's speaking evil talk around us. We stuff it into our ears to not hear the terrible words of Lashon Hara from this individual. Now, it's very interesting that the only organ that science, that biology does not know why we have, is the earlobe. Every other organ in our body, there used to be a theory called vestigial organs, meaning organs that are left over from previous iterations, as if to say that we exist in some other form and we were repurposed magically. That's an idea that some heretics have, and uh, trying to obviate the need for God. 
And therefore, the evidence, so to speak, to that is the fact that there's vestigial organs, there's vestiges of a previous existence, organs that have no use. And therefore, that proves that we have this leftover biological material and biological tools that have no use. That was a theory in the past. Now, we know the reason why we have every single organ in our body, including the appendix, amongst other organs that were previously viewed as being extra. The only organ that science does not understand why we have is the earlobe. And in fact, it's the only organ that the Talmud tells us why we do have it. And the reason for that is, is because it's the only organ that has a solely spiritual function. Its sole purpose is to prevent your ears from hearing bad talk. When someone starts to be Lashon Hurrah, take your organ that is designed for that, take your earlobe, put it into your ear, and prevent it from hearing those words. The rest of the Parsha, chapter 15, deals with a different kind of impurity, namely that of Zav and Balkari and Zava and Zavagdola and Nida. These are various emissions that come out of the genitalia, both male and female. There is uh, a seminal emission, there is menstruation, and then there's other emissions, a Zav and a Zava, which is a man who has an emission from the, his genitalia, but that's not a seminal emission, it's a different kind of emission. And then there's a Zava, which is an irregular emission that comes out of a woman. And uh, the basic breakdown over here is that uh, when there is a discharge from a man, he becomes a, uh, what's called a Balkari, he has to go to the mikvah, he has to go to, to the ritual immersion. He is impure until sundown. If there is a different kind of discharge, a different kind of fluid, he becomes pure after having seven clean days. If there's three discharges of that same fluid, either if that was done three times in one day or three consecutive days, again, he has to have seven clean days and has to bring offerings. And then there's the female discharges, the female emissions, the nida is a menstruation, and the zava is a different kind of discharge that is more irregular, and there is a minor one and a major one. And this, in fact, our parsha deals with the laws of purity and impurity, but today, part of these laws are still very relevant, and that is when a woman is menstruating, she becomes prohibited to her husband until the bleeding stops and she goes to the mikvah, she goes to the ritual immersion. And today, when we have our laws, what's called family purity, it's actually a mixture of the laws of Anita and the laws of a Zava, because it's not so clear what actually a Zava is. What is that emission? It's, it's, a, it's kind of complicated. And the Talmud already says that a regular case of Anita adopts some of the stringencies of a Zava Gedola. Thus concludes Parshas Mitzorah. Thank you so much for listening. My email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com.